Welcome to the Hope Church Memphis podcast. To learn more about Hope, including our worship opportunities, visit HopeChurchMemphis.com. Today's message comes from Senior Pastor Rufus Smith. Jeremy Rifkin is a futurist. He tracks trends. And Jeremy Rifkin says, this is the only generation that will stand in front of a microwave and say, hurry up. I don't know about you, but uh, don't raise your hand. Have you been guilty of that? Like me? Because we want instant gratification, don't we? And that's what the disciples wanted as well. They wanted instant gratification. But Jesus told them when he ascended that I want you to do two things. You're going to have to wait and you're going to have to work. You're going to have to wait, and you're going to have to work so that others can experience the kingdom of God. And so we continue our series on the fourth day. The third day, we understand, represents resurrection power. It's when Jesus rose from the dead. We serve the only Savior who says, I was dead, but now I'm alive. And I have the keys of death and the grave in my hand. So the third day represents power, resurrection power. But but what about the fourth day, the fifth day, the sixth day, the 40th day? Does it mean that on the fourth day, after Jesus rose on the third day, that the problems of the disciples dissipated? Did it mean that they would no longer experience suffering or sickness or fall into sin or have lives of sacrifice? No. The fourth day represents the ability of the disciples to live and lean into life with courage and confidence using this new dynamic tool of resurrection power. Jesus tabernacled, he domiciled for another 40 days on earth in order to teach them how to lean into, how to live into this new dynamic of resurrection power so that they could live a life of courage and confidence. And that's what the fourth day is all about. On the 40th day, they saw something that they had not seen before. They saw Jesus ascending. They saw him being lifted up into the third heaven. And they watched until they could see him no more. It would be sort of like him stepping on a cloud, like a helium balloon, and slowly being lifted up out of their sight. So what does the ascension mean for you? What does the ascension mean for me? That's what we want to talk about here a little bit because it is very relevant to our lives. This image of Jesus ascending, being slowly lifted 
into heaven was etched indelibly in the minds of these disciples. And that image allowed them to fortify their faith in their darkest hours because they recalled what the angel said about his ascension. So how does that translate for us today? Acts 1. Let me read it. So when they had come together, they began asking him, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? But he said to them, it's not for you to know the periods of time or appointed times which the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and as far as the remotest parts of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up, ascended while they were watching. And the cloud took him up out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, then behold, two men in white clothing, that will be angels, stood beside them and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Mm. So what does the ascension mean for me? It means at least three things that I want to share here today. One, since he has ascended, it means that my gospel works are being inspected. He's watching. Because he told them, I want you to do two things. Wait and work so that others can experience the joys of the kingdom on earth. And his ascension means that my gospel works are being inspected. Number two, it means that interceding is happening on our behalf. He is there. We are here. And yet he is interceding in his ascension for us even now. And then third, it means that his second return is imminent. He came down, he went back up, and he's coming back down again. What does that mean for us, for you, and for me? In the dissension, when he came down, he worked among us showed his disciples how to work, showed us how to work. But now in the ascension, he's watching us work. He's watching us work. So when they had come together, they began asking him, saying, Lord, is it time that you are, uh, this time you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? That that's what they thought. But he said to them, it is not for you to know the periods of time and appointed times which the Father has set by his own authority. They wanted instant gratification, even after those 40 days. No, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria as far as the remotest parts of the earth. In other words, get 
busy and go to work. You don't know when I'm coming back. That's not been given to me or to you, only the Father. And by the way, if people tell you they know when he's returning, then you know they haven't read this verse. I got a book on my shelf that says, 88 Reasons Jesus is Returning in 1988. <laughs> Apparently, the author didn't read this verse because we don't know. And since we don't know, our task is to work. He is ascended and is watching our work. Work where? He wants us to work in Jerusalem and Judea. That's home base. Take care of home first. And then he works, wants us to work in Samaria. That's uncomfortable, unfamiliar places. And then he wants us to work in the remotest parts of the earth. That's unknown, unconquered spaces. That's where I want you to work. I want you to work home base. I want you to work in uncomfortable and unfamiliar places. And I want you to work in unknown and unconquered spaces. So get to work. One of the things I like about the Masketeers is um, how this particular volunteer found a way to work. Single-handedly, she sold 3,200 masks in those early days. Let's listen to her story. So Jane and Laura basically uh, led the volunteers. We also have Kelly who volunteered and uh, she has a unique story that I'd love for her to share uh, with you about uh, how she came to volunteer and uh, what that meant to her. For me, when I was adjusting to life, um, the quarantine life as everybody did, <laughs> I also found myself adjusting to not having the opportunity to serve. And that just really hit me hard. Um, I felt lost and struggled with that, so I prayed for a way to serve. And I started seeing, um, through the services, a call for volunteers for the Hope Mask Ministry. And I didn't have a sewing machine. I've not sewed with a sewing machine before, and um, I started looking for one. Could not find one anywhere. I checked eBay, everything. Stores were out of stock unless it was over $1,000. So I reached out and found out that I could iron ties. So I got a batch and started ironing. And I think it was my second batch, the, my iron just broke. <laughs> um, so I just kind of felt a little bit in limbo and started getting just frustrated. I wanted to do more and I prayed and I was reminded that I don't serve for myself and I serve because I love God and I want to glorify Him. And I surrendered completely my service to the Lord and um, accepted His will and whatever happened. And I felt at peace with that. Um, I woke up early the next morning for my morning quiet time. And I don't remember why, but I um, checked my email first and there was an email with um, a notification that two sewing machines were available. Um, I bought one and almost right after that they were out of stock again. Um, and then I reached out to the group and started sewing. Kelly single-handedly provided over 3,200 masks. 
Wow. When did you first see her in person? About 20 minutes ago. <laughs> 20 minutes ago. <laughs> she came. We had a bin outside my front door where folks could um, drop off completed masks, pick up kits to make more. And Kelly was pretty faithful. Monday mornings early, she would be at my door. And because it's a quarantine, you know, I wasn't greeting every single person at the door, um, but I knew she was there. She texted me that she'd just done her drop and picked up. And the literally the first time we met face to face was when I let her in the door at entrance five. So just today was the first yes. time you actually saw her face to face. Yes. Wonderful. Amen. Find some work to do. Many of you are doing that. And as we move post-pandemic, um, we are encouraging you to continue to do that, even take it to the next level. So what kind of work did Jesus say you're going to have power to do? Total gospel work is what he calls us to do. Total gospel work. You know what a gospel work is? A gospel work is comprised of three things equally. Preaching, teaching, healing. All three. They are three things equally. It's not just preaching. It's not just teaching. It's not just preaching and teaching, but it's healing as well, healing the hurts of a fallen humanity. Sometimes we're good at the preaching part, not the teaching part, good at the healing part, not the teaching or preaching part, but he wants us to do total gospel work. It's three things equally. Preaching is the proclamation of a person. Teaching is the explanation of biblical principles. Healing is the mitigation of human pain, not the elimination of human pain, but the mitigation of human pain. I keep this little stool in my office. I keep it visible all the time, have had it for years to remind me of this gospel trilogy of preaching, teaching, and healing. And every once in a while, I sat on it. Now, yes, I used to be able to sit on it. Hold your breath. Whoa! <laughs> I'm just teasing. To remind me that total gospel work is preaching. That's the proclamation of a person, Jesus Christ. It is teaching the explanation of biblical principles, and it is healing. Be involved in the mitigation of human pain. It's all three. Now, notice what Jesus also said. You're going to be my witnesses. This word in verse 8 is a um, poor translation, actually, of the Greek word martyr. The word means martyr. Jesus says you are going to be my martyrs, my witnesses. In other words, there'll be times when you are going to have to pay an unusual price to be involved in gospel work. You may have to risk your life. You may have to risk your reputation. You may have to risk all kinds of things taken of your time and given of your talent, even when you are exhausted, but you are going to be my martyrs take risk and responsibility so that others can experience the gospel of the kingdom. You know why I'm in the kingdom today? Somebody took that seriously. 
and I'm in the kingdom today. Here's the second one. What does the ascension mean for me? Not only does it mean that he is watching us work, but in the descension, he intervened in human life on earth, but in the ascension, he is interceding for us right now. Intervening means that he came to our rescue when we were in trouble and could not help ourselves. Now he is interceding for us, which means that he is on our behalf, he's orchestrating our lives. Here's what Romans 8.34. I'm going to read it in two particular passages. Who is to condemn? In other words, rhetorically, nobody. Because Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. That's why he ascended. So he could intercede for us at the right hand of God. Here's a complete Jewish version, same verse. Who punishes them? Again, rhetorical. No one because of what Jesus did for us. Certainly not Messiah Yeshua, that's Jesus, who died and more than that has been raised. He's at the right hand of God and is actually pleading on our behalf. So in his ascension, He's interceding for us because we need it. We cannot do it on our own. Now there is a portrait, uh, a picture in many people's minds that Jesus' intercession means that he is kneeling at the Father, in front of the Father, and pleading on his knees for us so that the Father would not exact a vengeance on us. But let me dispel that picture in your minds because it is wrong. That is not what interceding is in the biblical sense. It's wrong, wrong, wrong. Now, I want to sear that in your minds. Repeat that after me. It's wrong, wrong picture. Jesus is interceding. The text says he's at the right hand of God. That's the favored side of God. He's on the favored side. His very presence, his very presence is enough to let us see, uh, let God the Father see, be reminded, so to speak, of what he's already done on a hill called Calvary. He is, does not have to kneel before him and plead that he not exact vengeance on us because he already exacted vengeance on him. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might have the righteousness of God. And that his very presence is a reminder of what he's already done. Here's a better picture of what intercession is. Interceding at the right hand of God means that he has ascended and he is mediating. He is navigating. He is orchestrating our lives. That's a much better picture. Meaning that he is like a conductor of an orchestra, he is orchestrating our lives so that we can move toward victory. It's like a ship 
captain who is navigating a ship through chaotic waters to bring us to a safe destiny. That's what interceding is. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He's watching us work, and he is navigating us through the ups and downs, the highs and lows, the ebbs of flows of life. Isn't it wonderful to know that that's what he's doing for you and for me? Here's one of my favorite verses, one of my top three, Hebrews 4, uh, 14 through 16. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let's hold fast our confession. And then he says, for we have this high priest, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect have been tempted or tested as we are yet without sin. Because of that, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in and help in the time of need. That's what he's there for. He's interceding for us so that we can find help and grace in the time of need. If you ever have a need, you can draw near with confidence because he's at the right hand of God the Father and he is mediating, he is orchestrating, he is navigating as he watches us work in life. So in his dissension, he intervened, rescued us. But in his ascension, he's doing more than that. He is interceding. He is mediating. He is navigating. He is orchestrating our lives. And then lastly, what does the ascension mean for me? It means he's watching while we work. It means he's interceding for us. And then it means that since he descended, came down, and he ascended, went back up, then he will descend again. That picture in their minds helped them through their darkest times. Acts 1.11. And they said, men of Galilee, these are the two angels, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. And then John tells us in Revelation 1-7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and some eyes will see him. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen, I am Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Isn't it good to know? I know it may not look like it, but if you believe, that he descended and came down to intervene on our behalf. And if you believe he ascended and now is at the right hand of God the Father watching us work, interceding for our work, then you have to believe that he is going to descend and come down again. I don't know about you, but as I march toward chronological maturity, I know I have more years behind me than I have ahead of me. And one of the things that brings me consolation is the fact 
that he came down, he went back up, but he's going to come down again. Amen? That's the God that we serve. Let me close with this. I, I love this story of my favorite heroine, and I'll finish so you can get to the picnic. Helen Keller, many of you may know, she's the most famous deaf-blind person in history. From the age of 19 years old, oh, she could not see with her eyes or hear with her ears. That's impossible for us who are sighted and who can hear to even imagine. But she was born in 1880 on a plantation in Tuscumbia, Alabama. Her father, Arthur Keller, was a former Confederate officer and a newspaper publisher. And her mother, Kate Keller, was a descendant of President John Adams. At 19 months old, however, she caught fever, and she lost her sight and her hearing. She became uncontrollable with tantrums and kicking and biting and smashing everything within her reach. Instead of consigning her to an insane asylum like many did in that day, <clears throat> she, her mother, contacted the Perkins School for the Blind in Boston. And in 1904, she became the first deaf-blind person to graduate from a normal college. That would be Radcliffe. And she did so with honors. In 1924, she became the principal spokesperson for the American Institute of the Blind and the Deaf. In 1964, Helen Keller was awarded the President's Medal of Freedom. That's the highest award given to an American citizen <clears throat> by President Lyndon Johnson. And in 1968, she died at 88 years of age and was buried as a treasured heroine in the National Cathedral there in Washington, D.C. But, but when asked, when asked what was the most significant day in her life, she answered this. It was in 1887 when I was six years old and I met the 20-year-old Ann Sullivan. Ann Sullivan moved into the Keller home and was a presence every day. Miss Keller always referred to Ann Sullivan as the teacher, the teacher. Ironically, Ann Sullivan was half blind herself, so she could identify and understood many of Helen's struggles. And though both would eventually marry for the next 49 years, Ann Sullivan interceded and navigated Helen Keller's life. Their story was made into a film called The Miracle Work. If you haven't seen it, starring Patty Duke and Ann Bancroft, it would be a great pastime. They even won Oscars for it. But thanks to Ann Sullivan's instruction, Patiently spelling out the letters and the words in Keller's hand, she learned nearly 600 words, most of her multiplication tables, and how to read Braille within a matter of months. At age 10, Helen began to gradually speak. At age 14, she went to formal school where by her side, Ann Sullivan was there writing letter by letter in her hand so she could read the books that were assigned. And when she enrolled in Radcliffe College, Ann Sullivan was right by her side. At age 70, when Ann died, she too was buried side by side 
in the Washington National Cathedral. I like that story because it is a great human picture of Jesus Christ as our intercessor, right by our side, helping us, painstakingly patient with us. Am I by myself? God has been painstakingly patient with us, like Ann Sullivan writing letter by letter in Keller's hand for her to understand the lectures and see them. God is like that in our lives. So we thank God for the ascension because it lets us know that he is watching our gospel work. We thank him for the ascension because it reminds us <clears throat> that he is interceding on our behalf. We thank him for the ascension because he gives us hope no matter how dark this world is, that if he came down to intervene and he went back up and ascended, he is coming back down to rescue you and I and to be the true king of the earth. So says the word of God. I'm Alpha and Omega. I'm beginning and the end. I'm Christianity foundation. I'm David's genealogical son. I'm the eternal father. I'm the first and the last. I'm good, great, and glorious. I'm high, holy, and heavenly. I'm Emmanuel. I'm the Lord of lords. I'm the king of kings. I'm the master of mighty men, and I will come back down. Bless his holy name. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God, our Father, thank you for the ascension and the fact that you are at the right hand of the Father, navigating, orchestrating our lives like a captain at sea. You help us to get through the chaotic waters of life, and you are painstakingly patient with us. We bless your name. And we ask that in the meantime, that we would get involved in gospel work, whether it's home base, whether it's uncomfortable, unfamiliar places, whether it is in unknown and unconquered remote spaces in the earth. It's in the name of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, even Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray and praise you. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Hope Church Memphis podcast. I'm Daniel Openheisen, Musical Worship Director at Hope. If you were encouraged by today's message, make sure to hit subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience previous messages, videos, and our live worship experience, visit us online at hopechurchmemphis.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Again, thanks for listening to the Hope Church Memphis podcast. 